the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. When you were sitting on your toilet this morning, but that's the first time you've heard a sermon start like that, did you notice that over the years, more and more of your toilet paper spindle, the little part that holds your toilet paper to the wall, is showing? That's because over the years, the width of a roll of toilet paper has decreased, of course, so that the companies can make more money by selling you less paper for the same price. Some companies have actually reduced the size of their roll by up to 25%. If you've been loyal to the same brand of undershirts for a time, you've probably noticed that they've gotten scratchier, thinner, almost see-through over the years as they have replaced cotton with thin synthetic fabrics. Our favorite foods are probably where this is most noticeable. A bag of Lay's potato chips, or shall I say a bag of air with some chips sprinkled on the bottom. If you notice, there's dozens of flavors now. And what's interesting is that they all cost the same price as the plain Lay's. But if you look closer the next time you're in that aisle at Safeway at the bottom right-hand corner, you will notice that the ounces are actually smaller on the flavor chips. And that's because in order to make up the cost of the flavoring, they remove a few chips from those bags. Now, you may argue that it makes sense, but just removing a few chips from every one of those bags puts $50 million a year in the pockets of Lay's potato chips. Have you noticed that you can no longer fit your hand in a can of Pringles? That's not because your hand has grown larger. It's because the tube has gotten smaller to accommodate the smaller chips. They made them smaller when they moved their factory to Malaysia. We've all noticed this. The size of cereal boxes to McCormick black pepper tins to even Chobani yogurt, which is even a recent product, all smaller for the same, if not higher price. When we see this, one word comes to mind. Stingy. Or maybe the word is greed. They want more money. And if we're bothered by these acts of greed and stinginess by large corporations because of a few simple products, imagine how God feels about our lack of generosity. You see, they're in it to make a buck. We are not. They are, for the most part, unbelieving corporations led by unbelievers who have no other motivation but selfishness, we are motivated by God's glory. And what's more, as believers, we understand that our money is ultimately not ours. It belongs to the Lord, and He has given it to us to be good stewards. And so this morning, I want to broach a difficult subject. And the subject is not giving. The subject is is giving generously. We've come to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians 16, something you guys thought would never happen. If you're joining us for the first time, we practice expository preaching, and so we've been going verse by verse uh, through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. We started early on during the pandemic, and we finally come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And as you may be well aware, as you are familiar with the epistles, the last chapter of Paul's epistles generally are all or contain a bit of just little odds and ends that he wants to cover as he signs off a lot of greetings. But it is still the Word of God, and so there's much that we can learn from it, and we definitely do need to read it. 
So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, as we begin reading Paul's conclusion, Paul's sign-off, Paul's final words to the Corinthians, at least in this letter. Verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. This morning in these four verses, I want to give you four applicable descriptions of the call to generosity. Four descriptions of the generosity that Paul is calling the Corinthians to, but that we can apply to ourselves. I want to be very clear. I consider myself a faithful expositor of God's Word, and so I want to be clear with you that what Paul is saying here are not commands to us today. This is a specific collection that the early churches were collecting for the church in Jerusalem. He is not commanding us here to be generous, nor is he commanding believers 2,000 years away from when he wrote this to give. However, elsewhere, God has. God has made it very clear that we are commanded to, to give, that we are commanded to be generous, and we're talking about not just giving to the church, but giving to other believers, giving to missionary endeavors, giving to Christian organizations, being generous, because ultimately what God cares about is our attitude and our view of money. And we'll talk more about this, of course, as we go through. But these four descriptions of what Paul is telling the Corinthians, as we have seen, he has also told the Galatians, are applicable to us. The first applicable description of the call to generosity for believers today is selfless provision. Selfless provision. Let me read for you again verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. We've seen that phrase uh, four or five times already in 1 Corinthians, the phrase now concerning. It simply tells us that Paul is switching topics. We spent several months in talking about the resurrection body, and now he has closed that. He is now moving on to this issue of this collection. And every time that he introduces a fresh issue, we are also understanding that implies that is something that the Corinthians have asked about several times. In 1 Corinthians, he is responding to questions that the Corinthian church had sent them. And so he says, well, now about this other thing that you asked about, and it's probably what he's doing here as well. And this time, this issue, the topic at hand is a monetary financial collection. It is a gift to help out other believers. And the gift that the Corinthians and other churches are collecting is headed toward the believers in Jerusalem. In Paul's day, ancient times, especially there in the Roman Empire, poverty was commonplace. In fact, extreme poverty was commonplace. The type of poverty that we say people are in poverty in our nation, but it doesn't even come close to what we're talking about here. You've seen depictions of this on television and in the movies. People begging for alms, people bloody and ill and sick. Now what you know about Jerusalem back then was that it was a religious center for Judaism, for the Jews. So many Jews moved to Jerusalem, which caused overpopulation. And overpopulation causes a strain or a lack of resources. Now for Christians there, the situation was even worse. Because they lived in the hub of Judaism, so there was much persecution of Christians, which led them to be even poorer than the majority of the poor. Many of them had their homes ransacked. Some even had those homes taken away. Because of the persecution against Christians, many could only get the lowest paying jobs. 
We know that some were imprisoned all because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now we see allusions to this historical reality in the Scriptures. We know that even Paul, before he was saved, then called Saul, was part of what is called, quote, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, Acts 8.1. This included many Christians being dragged off to prison, Acts 8.3. Romans 15 mentions the poor among the believers in Jerusalem, fittingly within the same context of this very contribution. So, enter the collection, the collection for saints for believers in Jerusalem. A collection was generally known in ancient writings as a religious collection for a god or a temple. Similar idea here adopted by the church. When we look at the Scriptures in the Bible, a collection is more than just giving someone money. It was a practical example of believers fellowshipping and showing God's grace. And as we see with much in the Christian life, that which is outwardly practical is much more than that because, again, God is concerned with the heart. In 2 Corinthians 8-7, don't turn there, it speaks of graciousness in the financial aid of other believers. And so we know that this is a way to show God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 8 and Romans, it is referred to as a service. Giving is referred to as a ministry And in 2 Corinthians 9.12, it results in thanksgivings, not just given, not just stated, but as we just read, poured out towards the Lord. And so we know that giving generously is a ministry to God, and it ultimately glorifies Him. It is fair to say then that all of those characteristics and ramifications are also true when we are generous toward other believers today. Paul does remind them that he is calling them to do something that he has already called the Galatian churches to do. Just as a quick aside, this would have been the Roman province of Galatia in which were the churches planted and established by Paul. Churches in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. All of them founded in Acts 13 and 14 on Paul's first missionary journey. Now what that teaches us is that there is a broader additional aspect of giving, and that is fellowship. Fellowship. We have a very selfish view of our money today, and so it may be hard to understand why giving generously, even in private, is an aspect of fellowship Here we see among the Corinthians and the Galatians, it is a common bond in Christ among the saints that is found in the support of other saints who happen to live in Jerusalem. And this fellowship would be extended, of course, to those who receive the money. There is a solidarity among believers in the common recognition, not only of financial need, but in God's sovereign grace in provision. To put it another way, this is not about those who are giving thinking they are better than those who are in need. They understand that this is not about obligation. This is about stewardship. This is not about personal achievement, but this is about God's plan. We all know if you're poor, that is God's sovereignty, and if you are rich, that is God's sovereignty. God has given some more so that they can give to others. In their day, in Paul's day, much like today, the unbelievers, the world, would often do charitable works, but they would do so only to bring oneself praise. You see, when someone was as poor as the poor in Paul's day, to give to the poor meant that the recipient had no means to repay the giver outside of praising them vocally, loudly. It's the worldview today that it is good to give because you are motivated by accolades, recognition, maybe even personal satisfaction. 
If it wasn't about them, no matter how much they gave, no matter how much it helps our society, we wouldn't know that that hospital was actually named after Zuckerberg. His name's right on there. If it's all about others, why put your name in lights that never turn off throughout the evening? Not so with the Corinthians, and not so with us. Paul wanted them to give to people they had never met so that even if they wanted to, the Jerusalem Christians could not give them praise but will give it all to God. This is why I call this selfless provision. Because we provide for others not out of a sense of self-worth or for them to praise us, but for God's glory. Some of you will remember that a few years ago we used to meet as a church in the local rec center. And we left for several reasons, but one of the biggest factors was that they were going to tear down the building and build a new one. That state-of-the-art building actually opened just a few weeks ago. It's amazing, especially if you've seen the old one. This new one is big, it's bright, it's modern. And when you walk in the front entrance of the new Burlingame Rec Center, right in the front entrance on the wall to your right, much like most publicly funded buildings such as hospitals, zoos, parks, you've seen it there too, there is a wall covered in names. It is the wall of donors, the wall of benefactors. Those are the names of the various donors who gave to that building and their name, whether a private individual or a corporation, is in a font whose size matches the amount of their donation. And you may think, well, maybe they didn't want their name on there. Maybe they didn't know. That's not the case because a small little placard there says anonymous. But that wall of donors you won't find in the church. You won't find a second page on any missionary newsletter listing all the people who have given and how much they have given because it's all about God. We don't give for personal accolades. We give for God's glory. And we glorify God by helping others, desiring to help others. We give selflessly. Selfless in the sense that we are not expecting anything in return. Selfless in the sense that we are not seeking to rob God of His glory. Selfless in the sense that we are generous and not stingy. When we give, when you give to the church or to missionary endeavors, the commonality you have with them is not that they recognize your name on the check. It is the common bond among believers that we all, giver or recipient, we all give thanksgiving and praise to God as we all strive to do the Lord's work. And if He has called us to minister in a place and in a manner in which we have excess money to give, then we do so with an understanding that we are all in this together. Like the early church We are to selflessly provide for others and not just ourselves. Because as the Lord said Himself, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To gain every dollar? To be the first trillionaire? Which, by the way, they think will happen in our generation. But lose His soul. We need to be selfless. We need to be generous. We need to provide. A second applicable description of the call to generosity is sacrificial planning. Sacrificial planning. Look at verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul gives very specific instructions on how the collection is to be made. Again, this is for the Corinthians. It's not for us, but we can learn something here. To be clear, this is a large collection over time 
that will eventually be hand-delivered to Jerusalem and it will be set off en route to Jerusalem when Paul arrives. And what he says is that the Corinthians are to regularly and systematically set aside money. He says they are to do this every Sunday, the first day of the week. And so this is important. A lesson we can learn here is that it's not as the Spirit leads. It is regular. It is systematic. It wasn't just when it was convenient or when there was excess or when the paycheck came or when we got a bonus or after we bought everything we wanted. It was a weekly, regularly scheduled event. The fact that it landed on the day of worship was just fitting. It was convenient. As they came together to worship the Lord, they would be reminded that worship involves giving. Small fact, but Paul doesn't tell them to bring it to church, but to, to set it aside day by day for the people in Jerusalem. Now, of course, we know that specifics are always helpful. You know this is true whenever you get directions or whenever you get a new job. And this specificity of this is much more helpful, helpful and has greater accountability than if Paul just said, do this once in a while, or even do this once a week. And what's more, if he were to have them just dig into whatever that money they had at the time of his arrival, the chances are it would be much less. They would have already spent the money or given it to someone else. We apply the same principle whenever we're saving up for something. We don't say, well, when that phone comes out, when the phone's released, we'll see if we have enough money. No, if you don't have enough money, you save up slowly, incrementally. From time to time, I talk to someone who says they, they want to give to the church, but they simply forget. And then eventually it slips their mind. I get that. We purposely chose to have an offering box in the back rather than having that offering plate or bag sent through during worship. So it distracts from worship. You're grabbing your, you know, you guys have been there. You know what it's like. And now we just live in a day and where things are done electronically. Most of you probably don't have checks anymore. Some of you probably never seen a check in your life. That's actually true for you older people. Think about that. But, like any habit, doing something on a regular basis on a specified day or time is going to help with consistency. We apply this to doing our quiet times when we struggle with that. We apply this to going to the gym, whatever it may be. We apply that to coming to church once a week. And so Paul says it needs to be regular, it needs to be systematic. But additionally, he says it is also to be universal. He says in verse 2, he says, each one of you is to do this. In other words, he is saying everyone is to give. Rich, poor, working, not working, whatever it is, everyone is to give. This is not just for those who are wealthy. This is not just for those who, have, who are no longer living in their parents' home, adults. This is not even just for those who want to. It is for everyone. There are no exceptions. In other words, God expects all of His children to give. And we're talking about a heart of generosity. We don't charge you to come to church. I think sometimes people are in that mentality. Well, I didn't give that week because I didn't go to church. Like it's some sort of ticket you have to pay to get in. It's between you and the Lord. It's about a heart of generosity and all are to do it. But he adds a third. Regular and systematics, number one, universal. And now, and this is a big one because it helps us with the, the last one, universal, everyone is to give proportionately as he may prosper, says the verse. The NIV has a looser translation that's helpful but not as accurate. It says, in keeping with his income. The problem with this is that God does not want us to just give out of our income, but out of any money that we receive, gifts, inheritance, investments, proceeds from sales on eBay or you're selling your car or whatever. Now, although the Old Testament law gives a percentage 
of how much the Jews were to give, that does not apply to us. It is not commanded in the New Testament. And by the way, if you want to be accurate to the Old Testament, it's definitely not just 10%, because if you collect everything throughout the year, it's closer to 28%. But you also need to understand, in the Old Testament, their giving was to their government. So it just doesn't translate. It's, it was more like we would say tithing, but in addition, for them, it was like income tax to pay for their police and judges and things. It just it doesn't translate to us in any way, culturally or biblically. But the idea of giving a percentage would be helpful to understand what Paul says here. Because as your income or prosperity increases, so does the amount in that set set percentage. And this would be between you and the Lord, what that percentage would be if you even have one. But we need to take into account that at a certain point, especially around here in the Bay Area, you will have a greater percentage of wealth that is excess and not needed. So that should impact your generosity. We give 10% because we need to save for emergencies and live off of the other 90%. But some of us, by God's grace, will reach a financial point where 90% will be in the millions and we simply don't need that much. And so... Generosity is not just merely giving 10%. And the final part of the verse simply means that Paul wants this all ready when he comes to visit so the gift can be taken to Jerusalem as soon as possible. This is a practical capstone to all the rules of planning that we've seen in this verse. So there's really no excuse for any believer not to be generous as the Lord has blessed all of us financially to different degrees. We need to be careful because don't you dare think that just because someone has more than you financially, you're not blessed. You'd be blessed as a believer if you just took your last breath and died. Blessing beyond measure. And so, as each has prospered or been prospered by God, so we are to give. There's no excuse because we all are able to plan. You all have schedules. You all know the time. You all live by dates. Secondly, he calls all believers to do it. And thirdly, although we don't all have the same amount, God has prospered us and we can give out of that prosperity, be it a million dollars or the widow's might. Again, we're talking about being generous. Not just checking off, oh, I've given. Be quiet, honey, I, I did it. But being generous, it's a hard issue. And a good way to put things in perspective is to see how much you spend on non-essential luxury items. I am not one to tell you that you cannot spend on those. I will never tell you that as a believer we shouldn't have cell phones or nice cell phones or vacations and things like that. Those are wonderful. Those are blessings. We have to have the right heart and thank God for them, of course. But think about how much you spend on non-essential luxury items. Before we do that, we need to be realistic about what is truly a luxury item. We all have luxury items that we consider necessities. Vacations, luxuries, extra shoes and purses, luxuries, replacement phones, luxuries. Eating at restaurants is a luxury. These are all non-essentials. You say, well, it's not really luxury because if I don't eat out, I wouldn't have time to cook. My job and ministry would suffer. If I don't go on that vacation, I really think the stress is going to get to me. Yeah, but here's the thing. There are people more stressed and busier than you are, and they can't afford those things. And they're fine. Because if you truly didn't have the money for those things, you'd survive. You'd learn to cook. You'd take less vacations. You'd de-stress another way. Still play golf. You just play at the cheap public course instead of the private course. Again, I'm not saying throw all those things out. I'm saying generosity and giving is not based on how much you give from what is left over. 
after you spend on yourself. Generosity is based on how much the Lord has given you. Don't give God the leftovers. Let me put it this way. Imagine there's something you really want to buy. A house, a car, and you look at your finances and you say, if we buy that house, the only way we can do it is if our children do not eat for three months. You would never weigh that. You would simply say what? Yeah, we can't afford it, right? You can't afford it. If you have to miss rent or a mortgage payment to get that new phone, you won't miss the mortgage payment. You won't even consider it. You'll just say, I can't afford it. Turn off the commercial. Stop asking me. I can't afford it. And if you have to give up giving to the church to pay for something, you can't afford that something. It's God's money. Stop giving Him the leftovers. You would never do that to your children. Give them the leftovers of your dinner. Hope you like gristle, son. Just go to bed. I'm really hungry. There'll be no leftovers tonight. You wouldn't do that. And when we understand the biblical reality that it's God's money anyway, we got to be so careful. So careful. Because this is the standard of generosity that the New Testament gives us. This is not me. Our local church, this specific church, is not in need. Trust me, far from it. You can give 20 times you give now. It does not change my salary by a single penny. Practically, I gain nothing from this. Spiritually, I gain believers and a family of God that are doing things right. We can fellowship over that. It's about the heart issue. Giving generously. And we need to keep in mind too, well, Paul later writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 that we read for our Scripture reading earlier this morning. In fact, turn there. You're so close. 2 Corinthians, one book over. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-8. through 8. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. Paul says, now I say this. He who, spo- he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, hard attitude. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have in abundance for every good deed. We're talking about ministry there. We understand what some people, especially uh, are most known for, for being on television, have taken passages like this out of context, saying the more you give to me and my third private jet, say these prosperity gospel preachers, the more the Lord will return. That's not what it's saying here. He says he will bless obedience, and sometimes blessing is not financially. In fact, some of us, though we would not desire it to go through it again, can look back on our lives and say the biggest blessing we've ever had from the Lord is when he took away. When he took away life, when he took away health, when he took away job, when we went through trials, in other words, because we grew closer to him. But we have to understand that we, what Paul has in mind is God's glory, God's ministry, and generosity in that. And we need to be cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. The idea is not that you don't give if it makes you unhappy. The point is that we are to give regardless and then make sure that your heart is in the right place. And some of us need to do that by planning. Thirdly, 
the third applicable description of the call to generosity is strategic protection. Strategic protection. To be thorough, I'm going to go over these verses, but they stray more from practical application for us today. He says, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. We've talked a few times in our study of 1 Corinthians about the difficulties of travel during that time. There was a greater danger of being robbed because of the speed of travel. The speed of travel, you, you would not just write, be riding on a horse as fast as possible like they would during a war. You'd just be walking slowly on an animal if you had one. But if you had an animal, you'd be walking slow enough that the people who were walking on their feet could walk next to you. Most likely, you're just traveling by foot. And so it's easier to be robbed. I mean, think about it. It's near impossible for someone to rob you when you're driving 70 miles an hour on the freeway and anything worth anything is digitally secured by your fingerprint anyway. When you're walking or even riding an animal at a normal pace, often far from anyone that could hear you if you were to cry out, bad things happen. Add to this the fact that you would have valuables on your person You would sometimes sleep on the road, the side of the road, in random places. You have a potential recipe for disaster. So you can understand the need for extra precaution when carrying a large sum of money. We're talking about different times. Again, this is not a credit card. This is not even paper money, which would not exist for another 600 to 900 years. Invented in China, by the way, just so you know. We're talking about heavy loud, clanking coinage. And Paul indicates that when he comes, he will send the money with those whom the Corinthian church, not he, but whom the Corinthian church approves. Although seemingly small aside, this is a huge point. Paul, as an apostle, Paul, as their spiritual father, as the founder of this church, is letting them choose who will bring the money rather than choosing for them. The principle that can be drawn out is that every local church is to handle their own money and entrust it to godly, responsible men. Seems like a no-brainer today, but keep in mind there are many churches that are connected to a larger governing body or denomination. Once again, we see the New Testament's clear teaching and example of the autonomy and significance of the local church. Along with these individuals, Paul will send letters. These would be letters of commendation or introduction, common during that time, especially if someone shows up with a large bag of money to make sure that it's legitimate, that it's not stolen. It would show the recipients in Jerusalem that those who are bringing this gift are legitimately sent from the churches authorized by the Apostle Paul. And despite this being God's provision, There still needs to be protection for the money. There still needs to be a careful accounting of it. Yes, we are to trust the Lord. Yes, we are to be generous. But that does not mean we don't hire accountants or have accountants or use banks and have an extra biblical distrust of the modern banking system. We still need to be careful. We need to be smart. Finally, our fourth applicable applicable description of the call to generosity is situational propriety. What is fitting according to the situation. Situational propriety. We've seen selfless provision, sacrificial planning, strategic protection, and now in verse 4, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Back in verse 3, we saw one of three references by Paul that he plans to visit Corinth. Being there when the money is sent, he says he will determine at that time whether it would be proper or appropriate for him to go on the journey to Jerusalem with them, with the money. We aren't told here what the circumstances would be that would make it fitting. We could only guess, and the guesses could range from the need for an additional person to protect the money or that he needed to go to Jerusalem to minister to someone anyway. The word fitting, advisable in the ESV and NIV, means worthy or right. So his going would have to do with the situation, other needs, 
or simply missionary and personal strategy. In this case, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he did end up deciding to go. And in Romans 15, 26 through 27, he actually states that they are setting off with the contribution, the same contribution mentioned here. So we know it's all the same situation and that they did collect and they did go and he was with them. So, generosity for the believer. We've seen from this description four applicable descriptions of the call to generosity. But I invite you, as we conclude, to turn to Matthew chapter 6. One of the most well-known passages regarding your view of money is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. This is a passage that applies to riches or money and that we can and have used it to apply to anything in regard to whom you serve. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. This goes back all the way to the Ten Commandments. You can have no other gods before him. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. What is he talking about here? Of all the things, he could be talking about Judaism, he could talk about idolatry, he could be talking about self, he could be talking about anything, but we know, he says, you cannot serve God and wealth. He's talking about money. This is huge that the one passage that we is most well-known and most clear from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself talking about you cannot have an idol. He's talking about money because He knows money is an issue. We know money is an issue. People say, well, look at the verse. I don't really serve wealth. I'm not devoted to it. But it's more than that, and the context tells us that. Look back at verse 19 in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. He's not making a practical thing. Say, don't don't save up your money because it could be destroyed. And you say, well, it's all digital now, so it can't be destroyed. That's not his point. He's just emphasizing his main point and where thieves break in and steal. His main point is this, verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. And here's the key. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then... The light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? You're saying he's changed topics. No, he hasn't because we go back to verse 24 which says you cannot serve both God and wealth. The very definition of whether you are full of light or full of evil is how you view money and how generous you are if generous at all. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your money, your car, your house, your family, all can be idols. I should mention 1 Timothy 6.10. I'll read that for you. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not all evil, all sorts of evil. Let's get it right. But the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You guys know this. Not money. It's not wrong to have money. Again, that's in God's sovereignty. The love of money. The love of money. This usually doesn't mean money itself. People don't just look at a dollar bill and go, oh, I love this thing. Look at, look at, look at the graphics. Wonderful. No, we understand what this means. It's what we 
get with our money or what we know we can get with our money, even if that means you buy nothing but you are comfortable. And you see the problem there. You find comfort and trust in a number on your bank app and not in the Lord. And if it's not just money itself, but the love of money and the stuff we use our money for, this also tells us, and this is so important, you do not have to be rich by the world standard or even your standard. You do not have to be rich to love money. In fact, in my counseling, people that don't have much are the ones who tend to love money the most. And some people say, I wish I could have enough money to love money. You love money if you think that way. If all you think about is I can have more money. I'm not talking about the guy who hasn't eaten in three days and just like, I really wish I could eat. That's not the love of money. Right? That's a love of life, maybe. But you understand what I'm talking about. If you are just driven by stuff that you can buy with money, comfort you can buy with money. I can't do this till I have this, and this needs me to have money. I can't give till I buy my house. I cannot start a family. I cannot minister until I have all my ducks in a row financially. You need to make sure you're not loving money. And the so that, right? I need to have enough money before I do that. Sometimes that, lo- that, that is an indication of a love of money. I understand the practical reality of this. I know that there are those uh, in our church who have gone through seasons of desperate want, especially in childhood. And so now there's a tendency to hold on and cling to money out of fear of that happening to you again or more importantly, to your children. I know that there are those in our church who were very wealthy, had everything they wanted growing up, and now they don't. And so there's that thinking, I need to have that stuff again, that lifestyle again. We need to be careful, friends. I cannot make it any more severe than Jesus Christ himself. Again, Matthew 6, how great is the darkness. Because of the clarity of these verses, I got to speak to you as a pastor. It comes as absolutely no surprise to me that many Christians that I encounter and those that I counsel that do not give generously also have problems with purity, have problems with their marriages, have problems with their anxiety and fear of man, have problems with the lack of service, in other words, loving others. I am not saying that if you start dropping money into an offering box or start supporting one of the missionaries we've seen these, this month will cure you of all those things but they are all wrapped up in a sinful heart that tends towards sin and selfishness. It all works together. So how generous do you want to be? Those companies with their shrinking toilet paper rolls and their bags full of air instead of food. They are for-profit corporations. For better or worse, because we're all sinners, they are part of God's sovereign plan in our powerful nation of capitalism and democracy. But we are not. We are not for-profit individuals, at least not monetarily. We are for the profit of the church in spiritual growth. We are for the profit of God's glory. We are stewards, caretakers of the Lord's money, which He has so, so graciously allowed us to use on things like being a foodie 
or having a nice car or having a home or two or three, and that's all fine. So long as we are not in sin in doing it. How are we in sin in doing it? Well, if we're bragging about it, if we're judging others who don't have those types of things, if we're not giving God glory and thanks for those things, but more to the point and more specifically and most importantly according to Christ, if we are not giving generously. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us so much. You have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have saved us. You have redeemed us. And on top of that, all of that, you have given us money in every single one of us. Even most of the children in our church have money to spare. May we use that wisely. Develop in our hearts an attitude of generosity with our time, with our spiritual gifts, with our comfort, and with the money that you have given us for that very reason. Help us to be good stewards. And when we prayerfully consider and see fit for the things that are in our homes and in our pockets and in our children's backpacks, May we give you all the glory, give you all the thanksgiving. May we give to your people from our first fruits and not from our leftovers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close in song. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.